You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Hope Bible Church, Niagara. So good to see you and uh, to hear you. I don't know if you get tired of me telling you this, but you sound really good. You sound really good. You should know that. And um, I don't know if you think you're a good singer, but collectively, it's a sweet, sweet sound of worship. And the Lord is pleased. He's pleased. Well, I wonder if you turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Ruth in chapter 3. And we are continuing in our teaching series that we've kind of woven through the summer here. Uh, in the book of Ruth. I know I've been away some, uh, but uh, God willing, I'm here the rest of the month and we'll finish, Lord willing, the book of Ruth as we uh, uh, spend our time in worship together on Sunday mornings here this month of August. As you're turning to Ruth chapter 3, I would just say if you don't have a copy of scripture with you, uh, just reach out the back, the, the under the chairs in front of you. Just look close by. You'll see there should be some Bibles close by there just under the chairs in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. And uh, the easiest thing is use the table of contents to go to the book of Ruth. And if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, I just invite you just to take that Bible on home with you. You can have it, uh, and we would be glad for you to take it with you if you need a Bible of your own. If you're a guest with us today, special welcome. Wanted to say uh, uh, welcome to Hope Niagara. And if you wouldn't mind doing me one small favor before you leave today, if you're a guest it's your, or if it's your first time in a long time, I'd be grateful if you just stop by the connection desk just outside those back doors before you go home and uh, just let them know that you're here visiting today. It's your first time or it's your first time back in a long time. And if you'd be willing to even do one more thing, to leave your name and contact information, I'd like to contact you this week personally just to thank you for being here and just to offer a personal word of encouragement. So I'd be grateful if you would do that and uh, we want you to feel maximally Welcome. And if, uh, uh, if Hope Niagara, if you're newish to our church and you're wanting to know more about us and, and about what it looks like to uh, be part of this church family, there's a great opportunity today after second service at 12.15. It's a, it's a class we call Discover Hope. Discover Hope is downstairs in the auditorium down in the, the below where we are right now. And uh, it starts at 12.15. So basically, once the service is over, if you want to join us, you'd be welcome to make your way down there. Lunch is provided. I mean, that's pretty good. So even if the class is totally boring, the food will be good, and uh, you will be welcome. I don't think it'll be boring, though. We're going to tell you, tell you about who we are and what we're about as a church. And in the journey here in life at Hope Niagara, Discover Hope is like, it's like step one. Well, I guess it's kind of like, I mean, showing up here is kind of step 1A, and then Discover Hope is 1B, okay? So you're warmly welcome to Discover Hope today at 1215. Our scripture text is Ruth chapter 3, as we're making our way through this amazing short Old Testament book. It's the story of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And you remember the story began in Ruth chapter 1 with a famine, And a famine hit the land in Bethlehem where Naomi lived with her husband and her sons. And with famine brought desperation. And in desperation, they made the difficult decision to flee Bethlehem and to go to a foreign country, to go to Moab. And uh, there in Moab, they were able to eke out a living and survive. And uh, while there, there's some good things happen. Uh, The boys, uh, uh, Naomi's sons, uh, married uh, Moabite women. But tragically... 
with much heartbreaks, there was three funerals. First, her husband Elimelech died, and then Mahlon and Kilion died, her sons. And as we get on into Ruth chapter 1, we find Naomi returning back to Bethlehem, heartbroken, uh, shattered, and feeling feeling like God had dealt with her very, very bitterly. In fact, she, she said when she returned to Bethlehem that I've, I've come back empty. I went away full and I've come home empty. Only thing is you and I can see in reading the book that she didn't come back totally empty because she had someone with her and that was Ruth her daughter-in-law. Her other daughter-in-law stayed, went back to Moab, but Ruth was there with her, and, and Ruth declared that she wasn't going anywhere. She gave that famous line, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. And so we, just, we have an inkling early on that Ruth is, I mean, this is quite the, the treasure she has. And then you get into Ruth chapter 2, and you see she doesn't waste any time. Ruth gets after it. She goes out into the fields, and she, her plan is to go out and to gather the scraps to be a gleaner, to go, to, to go along behind those who are harvesting the, the barley crops and to gather whatever's overlooked and left behind. And wouldn't you know, in the providence of God, or as the text says, it just so happened, she came to the field belonging to the manliest man in all the Old Testament, in my opinion, Boaz. She comes to Boaz's field, this godly man, and uh, he, he showed kindness to her. Well, he'd heard about her and her love for Naomi and surely also her confession of faith in Israel's God. And he heard about her and realized this is the person. And he showed amazing kindness to her, so much so that when Ruth returned home at the end of her first day, she had almost as much food as she could possibly carry with her. And Naomi was blown away and she saw for a moment something she hadn't seen in a long time. She saw all of a sudden, I should say, something she hadn't seen in a long time the goodness of God. Of course, she'd seen the goodness of God, but she was just blind to it in her bitterness and in her sorrow. But she, at the end of, of, uh, of chapter 2 and verse 20, she said, may he, talking about Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She was encouraged at God's kindness to her. And uh, now when we come into chapter 3, well, Naomi, she changes gears. Now she's taking on the role of matchmaker. Let's look and see what happens here. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, that is Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled 
and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. One of the many interesting creatures that God has made is the sloth. You know what a sloth is. It's that monkey-like looking animal that uh, I think is kind of cute. Some people think they're ugly, but who are you to judge? They live in the rainforests in Central and South America, and of course, they are notoriously slow and deliberate. In fact, it's said that in the wild, they will travel as far as 40 yards in 24 hours. That's not very far. That's four downs of football in a 24-hour period. They're very, very slow. And then uh, my understanding is the reason that they're so slow is because they have a slow metabolism. It takes them two weeks to digest their food. And as a result, they don't do much. In fact, the only thing they do a lot of is sleep. 15 to 20 hours a day, and their mission in life is to spend as little energy as possible. And most sloths do quite well at that. They're cute, but very lethargic. Now, having the sloth in mind really brings to life Paul's words in Romans 12, verse 11, when he says this, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. See, Paul knew that with the busyness of life and competing demands on time and energy and the weakness of our flesh, and add to that our own sense of inadequacy or timidity, all these things can leave us spiritually lethargic. But Jesus didn't save you to be lethargic. He didn't save you to be still or silent or sedentary. And, and my suspicion is that most of you don't want that either. You want to live for the Lord. God wants you to live on purpose for him. It's something that he intends for you. It's also something that he inspires in you. And we'll see in our passage today that when you know God, when you get a vision for who he is in his character, when you see something, when you know him, when you see something of God as he is, 
he inspires us to action, to zeal, to service, to living for him. That was the experience of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And the particular vision that they saw of God is an emphasis that we see, have seen already here in the book of Ruth. Two things in particular. One, God is great. He's great. Yeah, that is to say that he's, he's sovereign over all things. When I speak of his greatness, I have in mind specifically his control over all things. That he has final authority over everything. He's, he's at work, and we've seen that in the book of Ruth. I mean, even Ruth, when in her bitterness, acknowledged that God was in control. She said she, she was unhappy with her circumstance, but she acknowledged it. She said, the Almighty has dealt with me bitterly. We may be uncomfortable with her uh, pointing her miserable circumstances back to God, but I'll take her theology any day over a lot of other people's theology. She believed that God was in control. And if my life is going wobbly and if circumstances are difficult for me right now, that traces all the way back to the sovereign hand of God. She knew that God was great. But she also tasted and saw that he was good. And like I said, when we get to the end of chapter 2, she marveled at the kindness that God had shown her. And whoa, what a wonder, a difference between chapter 1, it ends and she's bitter. Chapter 2, she's hopeful. She knew something of this God. She knew this God, his goodness, his greatness, and his goodness. That was Ruth's experience too. She left Moab and she esteemed the God of Israel as greater than all the God's of Moab, and she had heard of his greatness, and then she was seeing his goodness in providing for her and her mother-in-law. And then, of course, there's Boaz. His experience of God shines through as we meet him in Ruth chapter 2. You recall when he, we first meet him, he's speaking words of blessing. His, his godliness just oozes out of him in not only how he treats his workers, but in his amazing compassion and tenderness toward Ruth. He's He's a man who prays, who prays for, prays blessing for, for Ruth. He, he knows that God is able. He knows that God answers. He believed in a God and knew a God who was great and a God who was good. Now, these are three people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, who are seeing, experiencing, and knowing our God who is great and good. Now, my question today is, what happens in the lives of people who know this God? Like, like, what happens in your life and mine when we know this God and we experience and see and perceive with the eyes of his heart his greatness and his goodness? Like, when you get a vision, when you have a palpable taste of a God who is in control of everything, when you have a palpable taste of a God who cares, who has kindness, what might that do to you? Well, I would say that we're going to see in our text today this very thing. The greatness and goodness of God inspires us in life-changing ways. The greatness and the goodness of God, when you know him, when you encounter him, he does something to you. Namely, he inspires you. He, he impacts you in life-changing ways. And I've identified four such life-changing ways from Ruth chapter 3. Now, let me get into the story here. We've, we've read through it here. Let's sort of walk through it together, and I'll show you these four life-changing ways that God's goodness and greatness inspires us. The first scene is up at Naomi's house. And uh, uh, Naomi is uh, amazing how she's gone from being, she can't see beyond 
her bitterness and her sorrow to the end of chapter two. Now things have changed. And here's the thing that happens. When a person goes from being, uh, from being uh, blinded by bitterness to now being hopeful in the living God, it's amazing the transformation that can happen in their life and the perspective that comes. Now she can see a future. Now she's plotting and planning to get her daughter-in-law married to like the coolest man in all the Old Testament, Boaz. And you see that her concern for Naomi, for Ruth, is for her future. In fact, she says, should I not seek rest for you, verse 1, that it may be well with you? See, I think she looks at Ruth and says, she is such a treasure, and she's so precious to me, but her and I, we're just surviving together. What's going to happen, though, when I'm gone? And she's totally on her own. She's still a Moabite. She's still a foreigner. And in antiquity, there was no social assistance programs. You couldn't go back to college and retrain and retool yourself. It was survival of the fittest, kind of. And, and, and she had concern and care for Ruth. And so her strategy was to help her get married to the manliest man going, to this godly man, Boaz. Not a bad strategy who could care for her and provide for her. And by the way, he's great. He's a great man. And so this is what she does. Now, I acknowledge it's a little strange her strategy, but notice what she calls Boaz, verse 2, that he is a relative. Now, this refers to a tradition born out of the Old Testament law where a male relative would marry the destitute, childless widow of another relative. We're not too sure how closely related Boaz was to Elimelech, but they were at least distantly related and part of the same big group in Israel. And it was a significant thing that Naomi had in mind for him to do with Ruth, to marry her, and in particular, to care for her and provide for her and to give to her security, to give to her a future like she couldn't have on her own. And so her plan is this. I know it's strange, and in the year 2023, it's hard to fathom how this all works into a marriage proposal, but however it works, you can see it paid off. It seems to have worked. He got the message, and things are moving generally in the direction we all want them to because he's the man and she's the woman. We want them to get together. Well, it's happening, but we got to be patient. So what's her plan? Well, I, I don't, I don't want to sound strange, but the plan is this. Clean yourself up. Smell nice. Put on your best clothes. And go on up to the threshing floor where he's going to be working late all by himself. And when he's done his work, wait till he's eaten. And he's satisfied. His tummy's full. And he lays down in the cool of the night and falls asleep. And then, softly, quietly, make your way over to him and uncover his feet and lie down. Now, I know it sounds weird. And, and there's, you know, in the Bible commentators, there's lots of discussion and debate about the symbolism and the strategy of uncovering the feet and everything like that. But all I'm going to say is this. Not only did it work, but Ruth did it as her mother-in-law said. And, and as she, she does this, she, it's, it's remarkable what she does. She, she makes her way over and uncovers his feet and lies down and then just waits. And you see that things unfold. They begin to unfold the way that Mumsy intended. Which brings me to my first point. The goodness and greatness of God inspires faith that seizes opportunity. 
It inspires faith. God's greatness and goodness inspires faith that seizes opportunity. Naomi realizes there's an opportunity here for Ruth with Boaz. She's observed Boaz's kindness to Ruth. And maybe, maybe, I can't be sure, but I wonder if some of Boaz's kindness and compassion and lavishness toward Ruth was a way in antiquity for a godly man who's many years older than this adult godly woman, if it was a subtle way for him to signal that he thought that she was just fine. And Naomi seems to, maybe, if so, she picks up on that and sends her beloved daughter-in-law to see him in the night. This is a risky maneuver. I mean, this, you, you don't have to be an ex- expert on, in, on ancient customs to recognize this could go really bad. I mean, he could totally misinterpret her actions that night. He, he could wake up and think that she was trying to do something immoral with him. She could be the victim of him doing something immoral with her. It's a risky thing. And and whose word would anybody believe if he took advantage of her? She's a Moabite woman, after all. And he, a prominent Israelite, godly man. But Naomi has faith in a God who's great and good. And he also sees the impact of God's greatness and goodness in the life of Boaz and the life of Ruth. Was it risk-free? No, hardly But she saw an opportunity, and with faith, she acted. And Ruth, too. And it isn't long before Boaz is in on it as well. The goodness and greatness of God does stuff to us. When you know him, one of the things is that it inspires faith that moves us to lay hold of opportunities that are in front of us. When hope rises in the people of God, so also does creativity. And ambition and imagination. The end of Ruth chapter one, Naomi's not looking past this moment in her sorrow. But as God ministers to her and reminds her of not only his greatness, but also his goodness, there's a refreshment that comes that's so vital for the people of God to live. A refreshment that renews hope. And when hope is renewed, so also comes imagination and possibilities and and seeing of opportunities that are right here in front of us ministering to a lost neighbor, loving a wandering son, engaging in mission, in ministry. The goodness and greatness of God inspires faith that seizes opportunity. This this is how Paul rolled. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8 and 9, he said this, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for, listen, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. In other words, it's not going to be easy, but God's in it, and I'm going for it. I had plans to do something else, but I I see an opportunity right here. And there's a risk involved? Sure, there's risk involved. And will I regret later changing my plans? Maybe. But God's opened a door, and it's here. And knowing his greatness, that he's in control of all things, and knowing his goodness, that he cares for me. I'm in a can't-lose situation, and so it inspires creativity, even boldness, even righteous risk-taking. And, loved one, that's large. That's so much of the Christian life. Believe in God, 
and acting based on your knowledge of him. Dale Ralph Davis said this. He said, believing that all things are in God's hands doesn't freeze us, but frees us. See the difference? Some of us are frozen right now. Nathaniel talked last week about fear. Maybe it's frozen in fear. Maybe you feel like the sloth and really lethargic and not moving much. Maybe you're one of those God's frozen chosen right now. And you just feel like, yeah, you know what? I'm not really engaged for the Lord. Well, what you need is not a pep talk from your pastor. What you need is a renewed, refreshed vision of God. How great he is. He's got this. He's got it all in his hands, including you. And he cares for you. He has compassion for you. And when you know him like that, it doesn't freeze us up, but frees us to act for him, to move past maintaining, to get beyond going through the motions, to being zealous for good works, seizing opportunities. And I was thinking of examples of this before I came today to, to preach this. I was thinking of a number of years ago, being at a conference, and one of the conference speakers was a man named Ramez Atala. Ramez is the, uh, he heads up the Egyptian Bible Society. And uh, one of the interesting things about the Egyptian Bible Society is it's very difficult to distribute Bibles in Egypt. In fact, it's illegal to give them away. So what do you do when you head up a ministry that's devoted to distributing Bibles and you're in a country where it's illegal to give them away? What do you do? You sell them. You sell them. And that's what they do. They sell Bibles. In fact, they've got large evangelistic billboards up around Cairo, and um, it's illegal to proselytize, but they're not proselytizing. They're advertising their business of selling Bibles. And they've distributed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies of Scripture by not giving them away, but, the, but by selling them. Think of another guy that I knew. We talk about ambition and creativity. Another guy that I knew, and maybe I've told you about him already, but years ago, he, uh, in his hometown, is a university town where he lived, and he had a, some business acumen and a love for good food, so he opened up a pita shop and sold pita. It's kind of like pita pit, but, uh, but a, a privately owned business, and he opened up, but he set up shop right down the street from the university, right nearby the campus. He did it for a purpose, because he knew this about students. Students are hungry, and if I can feed them, I can talk with them. And so that's what he did. He opened up his pita shop so he could engage with students and talk with them about Jesus. And you know what? It worked. It worked wonderfully. He had students coming all the time. And as they're sitting there filling their faces, they talk about things that really matter, about Jesus, about eternal life, about heaven, and about hell. In fact, one day, it was kind of comical. One day, uh, one of the university professors walked in. It was a professor of philosophy. And he walked into the pita shop. And they're like, can I help you? He's like, I want to speak to the pita shop guy, like the guy who owns this shop. He said, well, that's me. He said, you're the guy. He said, my philosophy class, my students are always prefacing what they say by this line saying, well, the guy at the pita shop says, they keep coming back with your arguments. I wanted to, wanted to meet you. Talk about ambition. Where does that come from? That comes from knowing a God, knowing him. He's great and he's good. It inspires ambition and creativity for him. Or how about some friends of ours who are serving God in difficult place in the Middle East? And what they do to connect with people who are open to hearing about Jesus is they use, they use that, that wonderful platform called Facebook. 
and they buy Facebook ads, and they use that. You click on this ad, it leads you to another, and leads you to another, and leads you to a place where if you are searching for Jesus and want to know Jesus, brings you to a place of, would you like to meet someone who loves and follows Jesus? I love the creativity. Is there risk involved? Massive risk. But they know and they believe in a God who's great and a God who's good, and they see opportunity and move toward it. This is what I want for you and for me. Believers who know this God who's great and good, who have a keen awareness of his sovereign power, who have a palpable taste of his goodness, of his kindness, were mobilized to serve. It does sing. When you know this God, you can't just sit. You've got to stand. You can't just stand. You've got to move because he inspires that kind of faith. Churches that merely maintain have lost their vision of God. The goodness and greatness of God inspires faith that seizes opportunity. I'm keenly aware, Hope Niagara, there are opportunities abounding before us. So what's my response to that as a pastor? The call on you to plead with you to draw near to God. And he will inspire faith that seizes opportunity. Well, we see that here in this text, but of course it goes on from there. We go from Naomi's house up to the threshing floor, and here's where we start to get nervous. Like if you're, if you're living in the text, you're starting to get nervous for everyone involved, especially for Ruth. I mean, if you're living in this text, you can see this woman, and you can imagine, you can sort of feel her heart pounding as she waits and waits. Like, is he ever going to stop working? Is he ever going to stop eating? Is he ever going to lay down and go to sleep? And she waits, and then as this, this slowly, slowly sloth-like unfolds, she waits and waits until finally he's asleep, and then she makes her move. And we're, our hearts are pounding for her. We're like, this could go so bad. This could go so. This could be misunderstood. She makes her way over there very quietly, softly, and she takes the blanket and uncovers his feet, and then lies down. Now, why did she uncover his feet? Again, I, tell, I don't have a definitive answer. Some do have definitive answers, but others say their definitive answers are wrong. Here's what I'm coming with you. I think, at least I know this, that uncovering his feet accomplished one thing that was necessary for this all to go down properly, and that was it will come up. It will come up. You ever woke up in the night because you're cold? Hands up if you've ever done that. Okay, so you know what Boaz went through. He was sound asleep, dreaming probably of barley. And all of a sudden he woke up because he was cold. I was camping recently and I woke up in the middle of the night, freezing cold. Why was I freezing cold? I had no blankets on me. I'm just laying there in the tent. So then I get the blankets over top of me. I woke up an hour later. You know why? I was sweating. And my, my, my sleeping bag was, was like a sham wow. That's just absorbing all my sweat. It was pretty disgusting and gross. Funny how that is, isn't it? When your temperature's off, it's tough to sleep. That's what happened to Boaz. But imagine this poor man. He wakes up freezing cold. He does what you would do in the night, freezing cold. He, he you know, sits up and bends down to cover his feet. Ah! There's a woman there. Imagine how you would feel if you woke up in the night cold and went to put the blankets over your feet and there's a person in your bed. Shocked at this. He says what you and I would like. Who are you? It's not that he had no idea who Ruth was. It was just he just woke up. It's dark out, and she's there. Why are my feet so cold? What she says is remarkable. I am Ruth, your servant. Listen, verse 9. Spread your wings over your servant, for you 
are my redeemer. She's good. This is, this is so good. I know it sounds weird because we live in Canada in 2023, and you've probably never in your life heard of a marriage proposal that goes like that. But I suspect that she has observed Boaz's intonations to her. And she here is almost basically quoting what Boaz himself said back in chapter 2 about Ruth and her relationship with God. In chapter 2, verse 12, having met Ruth and having realized this is the woman I've been hearing about who's believed in the God of Israel and who's here loving and serving her mother-in-law, widow though she is, he said this, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now remember, that was a, that's a major mark on Ruth's life that she entrusted herself fully to God. It came under God's wings. Now Ruth takes those words of Boaz and puts them back to him. It says, just as I have placed myself under God's wings, I would also like it very much to put myself under your wings too. This is awesome. Like this, this is so amazing. You see what she's saying? I want to be with you. I want to come under your headship. I want to be in your household. I want you to belong to me and me to belong to you. It's amazing. She must have rehearsed that. Can you imagine as she waited, thinking over, how, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? She pulled it off beautifully. In verse 10, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have, gone, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. I love this. A couple levels. One, Boaz is blown away that she wants to marry him. He's like, you, you're, he acknowledges here in this situation, even in the ancient machinations of all this, she has freedom here. She doesn't have to be there, but she wants to be there. And he's so glad that she is. And he's honored, dare I say, blown away, that this amazing, remarkable, godly, righteously risk-taking woman wants to be with him. And just as an aside, this isn't in my notes, so this is just for free. I would say, if you're married, you would be wise to at least from time to time stand back and marvel at the fact that your husband, your wife, chose to be with you. I mean, you know you, and you wouldn't marry you. But she did. You know, I, from time to time, I will, many times, my wife, she's not, not here in this service, but from time to time, I will tell her. I'll just stand back and just look at her. She's, in, she's incredible. I mean, many of you know her well. You would agree. She's amazing. And she married me. And so I'll tell her many times, thanks so much for marrying me. It was really nice of you to do that. That's what's happening here. Boaz is just amazed. She wants to marry me. This is, I mean, love is in the air. This is just beautiful. There's birds singing, I'm sure, even though it's midnight. This is just, 
is so beautiful. But the other thing that he points out here is about her kindness. Her kindness. See in verse 10, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, young men, whether poor or rich. It reminds me of how Ruth got here. And how she got here was firstly entrusting herself to this great, good God. And that worked itself out in her life in sacrificial love for her mother-in-law. The reason she got here, the, the, the means by which God caused all this to come about was at least in large part because of Ruth's sacrificial love of her mother-in-law. She honored God in loving Naomi. Remember when we meet Naomi, she's not in a good place, but she loved her anyway. And God in his kindness is here rewarding her and blessing her because of this love. But this love that she got wasn't just from her own nature. She didn't read books on love and figure out how to apply it. No, she knew God. And knowing the greatness and goodness of God and knowing him and loving him and worshiping him resulted in her being in wonder and amazement at him and it worked itself out in her showing sacrificial love. You see, the greatness and goodness of God inspires faith that sees his opportunities, but it also inspires faith that loves sacrificially. That loves sacrificially. You got somebody in your life who's difficult to love? What you and I need is to get close to God. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. And as he draws near to you, your eyes begin to be more and more open to who he is and the revelation of who he is does stuff to you. Like makes you love people that are hard to love. Love is not selfish. Selfishness ruins relationships, but sacrificial love honors God and blesses us. Of course, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? Loved us sacrificially. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Aren't you glad that Jesus was not selfish? Ephesians 5, 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. If Jesus did not exhibit selfless love, we would not be saved. Aren't you glad for his selfless love? When I said that in first service, somebody shouted amen. Aren't you glad for his selfless love? <laughs> Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Where does that zealousness come from? It comes from the knowledge of the sacrificial love of Jesus who gave himself to redeem us. See his greatness. See his goodness. If he had acted selfishly for merely his own interest, there'd be no salvation. The root of sacrificial love is found in God. So draw near to God as you love your aging parent, as you care for that difficult to care for child as you persevere with that hard-to-live-beside neighbor, as you drag yourself into work to have to spend the day around that person. The goodness and greatness of God inspires faith that seizes opportunity, that loves sacrificially, thirdly, that behaves righteously. Ruth's decent proposal is understood by Boaz, and he's overjoyed and honored. Of course, for a moment, our hearts stop 
because he says that actually in the ancient working of things, there is someone who could fill that role of redeemer who is actually a closer relative. So Boaz, I believe wanting to fulfill all righteousness, is going to go and to make this situation known to that relative. And if that relative agrees, then he can have the opportunity then to marry Ruth and be her protector, provider, redeemer. And all of God's people reading this passage say, no, 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 because Boaz is the man. We're not marrying some other relative. The guy's probably a loser anyway. He's not even mentioned here. What's his name? He's probably, there's Boaz and Ruth. We want them together. No, 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 no. I don't want another, a problem. Well, problem, problem comes. But Boaz is going to act righteously and he's going to see it through. And Ruth does what her mother-in-law said. Just do what he tells you and wait. The goodness and greatness of God inspires faith that behaves righteously. I just want to say this, that of all that's happening here, perhaps the most remarkable thing is what doesn't happen here. He thinks she's fine. And she thinks he's pretty nice too. I would argue they like each other a lot. And it's nighttime. Stars are shining. And they're right there. And there's nobody around. I'm not sure what you're thinking. But I'm thinking, if they wanted to, they could really just sort of enjoy each other's company in a way that ought to wait for marriage. It's what they don't do here that, to me, I think is maybe the most remarkable thing in the whole chapter. And Boaz, brothers, Boaz takes the lead in this. And he treats her righteously. In fact, he takes care that there's no shame or embarrassment brought upon her in the timing of sending her home. And stop and think what it is that God is doing here. Think about it. Think about this moment. There has to be, in one sense, some strong temptation here. This is ripe opportunity for there to be moral failure. And yet, Naomi, who orchestrated this thing on the human level, believed in the God who was sovereign and believed and knew something of the character of Boaz and Ruth and their relationship with God. And I think just as Naomi suspected, righteousness won the day. Stop and think what God is doing here. He's not just bringing together a man and a woman. When we get to the end of the story, we see that he is preparing the way for the greatest king of Israel, the descendant of this soon-to-be-married couple, King David. And many, many years later, from David would come the Savior of the world, Jesus. God is working great things in this moment when this man and this woman walk righteously. I believe that God honors you when you walk righteously before him. It doesn't mean your life's going to go swimmingly. It doesn't mean the proposal is always going to go the way you think it will. But God will work in you. God will work through you for his glory and your joy. Count on it when you honor him. Psalm, 19, Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. See, that's where the power is at. 
being satisfied in the Lord, that's where the inspiration comes from, to behave righteously, getting near to him. The nearer I am to him, the greater my passion for holiness, the greater my distaste for sin. I want to read to you just a brief section out of this book. It's on the book of Ruth. It's written by Pastor John Piper. He's written good books. This is, this is my favorite. I don't know if it's his best book, but it's my favorite. This is what he says. The mood in American life today is, if it feels good, do it. And away with guilt-producing puritanical principles of chastity and faithfulness. But I say to you who are unmarried, if the stars are shining in their beauty and your blood is thudding like a hammer and you are safe in the privacy of your place, stop. Stop for the sake of righteousness. Let the morning dawn on your purity. I close this chapter by pleading with you to stand with Boaz and Ruth in your commitment never to have sexual relations outside of marriage. I know that many of you have already failed. There is hope for forgiveness. When the Apostle Paul describes a Christian to describe the Christians in Corinth, he included the sexually immoral, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, along with the thieves and greedy and drunkards and swindlers. But then he said, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. If you have failed sexually, there is forgiveness and cleansing in the offspring of Ruth and Boaz, Jesus Christ. Hear that, loved one. Hear that. There is forgiveness for you. There is a washing clean. There is a new day found in Jesus. But for those who have not yet had sexual relations outside of marriage, indeed, for all who hope to fight for future holiness, I am pleading with you for your own sake and for the glory of Christ, that if you embrace the righteousness of Ruth, that you embrace the righteousness of Ruth and Boaz. They are models of deep, strong, righteous, passionate love, better models than politicians and movie stars. And I say to you, loved ones, how did they get there? They got there by knowing God and being near to him. The goodness and greatness of God inspires us to seize God-given opportunities, just to love sacrificially, to behave righteously. Finally, the goodness and greatness of God inspires faith that hopes expectantly. The end of chapter three, the suspense is killing us. <laughs> What's gonna happen here? There's a potential problem here. Some other loser maybe who's coming into the situation might ruin this whole beautiful love story. But what happens when, when, uh, when Ruth returns home to Naomi is Naomi tells her to do the one thing you all love to do. Wait. Wait. Of course, we hate waiting. Some of you are in a waiting place right now and the suspense is killing you. There isn't even a good magazine to read as you wait wait for a breakthrough. Maybe you just suffered loss. You've come through disappointment. You're staring down. You don't know what's next. You're left to wait. Well, we see here these two women, Naomi and Ruth, and we also see Boaz going out into action. We see Naomi and Ruth waiting, I believe expectantly. At the end of the, the, of the, the chapter, Naomi says this, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Wait. Loved ones, that's where many of us are today, waiting. And I would just call on you to wait with hopeful expectation because you follow a God who's great and good. Let me leave you with this story. It comes from the 19th century. 
there is an evangelist who heard about a woman who was married to a pub owner and the woman was terminally ill. And so the evangelist went to visit this woman in the hopes of being able to share the gospel with her before she passed away. And when he showed up at her home, he was pleasantly surprised to discover that she had recently given her life to Jesus. And she was resting in him and, and looking forward to being with Jesus. And he, he marveled at that. And so at some point in the conversation, he said to her, like, how did this all come about? She said, well, I, I, I read that. And she pointed at a newspaper over on the table. She went over and looked at it. And the newspaper, now remember, this is, in, this is in the UK. This is in England. And he picks up the newspaper and sees in the newspaper a sermon printed there from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher from, from London. And he preached a sermon. He said, I, I read that sermon. We talk about what Jesus did for me. And she read there about the good news of Jesus and trusted in him and was saved. So he looks at the newspaper. He's like, oh, that, that's amazing. And then he looked at the top of the newspaper and saw that the newspaper, the newspaper was from the United States of America. So he said to her, well, how did, how did you get this newspaper here? She said, oh, I got, a, I got a package delivered to me from my friend in Australia. And she used that newspaper to wrap the package. Now, at this point, the evangelist must have taken a seat to think about this. A Baptist preacher in London, England, preaches a gospel sermon that is printed in a newspaper in the United States of America, which somehow, someway, ends up in Australia, which just so happens to be used to wrap a parcel and shipped back to England. And this woman opens the parcel and just so happens to read the newspaper that the parcel was wrapped in, learns about the love of Jesus, and gives her life to the Lord and is in heaven today. <laughs> that is your God. Listen, he does crazy stuff like that all the time. All the time. Even when you least expect it. All I'm saying to you is get near to him. And as you get near to him, he will inspire in you an expectant hope. Look at the difference, loved one. Look at the difference that God can make in your life. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Make it your aim to know him. Being in his word, seeking him in worship. Say, Lord, I want to know you. In fact, why don't we pray that right now? Let's just pray that together.